Hello, NFU community, and welcome to today's podcast. My name is Dr. Josh Garibaldi, and I am a clinical and scientific liaison at Otsuka. I will be moderating today's discussion. In alignment with National Donate Life Month, the NFU community wanted to explore the transplant journey, where we will walk through the pre- and post-transplant process, including candidate selection, access issues and barriers, concerns around medication adherence, regimen complexity, and medication errors, and potential solutions to tackle some of these problems. This podcast will focus on the pre-transplant journey. We have another one planned to dive into the issues post-transplant. We are joined today by Dr. Dave Tabor. He is a clinical pharmacy specialist in transplantation at the VA in Charleston, South Carolina, and a professor in the Division of Transplant Surgery, College of Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina. He has been working in the field of solid organ transplantation for over 20 years as a clinical pharmacist and researcher, focusing on medication safety and racial disparities in transplantation. He has NIH, AHRQ, and VA grant funding, with over 150 publications and 250 abstract presentations related to his research. So Dr. Tabor, can you describe the general process in being listed and receiving a kidney transplant? Certainly. So there's basically five steps to the process. The first step is the referral to the transplant center. And this is typically done by the dialysis center. Although if the patient isn't on dialysis yet, that can be done by their primary care doctor or nephrologist, or uh, even any healthcare provider can refer a patient. It does not have to be a physician. Uh, it, it's often completed at the dialysis center by actually the social workers is where we get most of our referrals at the transplant center. Unfortunately, up to 80 or sorry, up to 50% of those referred will actually never proceed to the next step. The next step is the initial evaluation. And during this, we will assess absolute contraindications to transplant. Typically, this can be done uh, seamlessly uh, coordinating with the patient and the, the referral organization, the dialysis center. Typical uh, absolute contraindications include active or recent cancer, chronic illness that will likely lead to death within a few years, uncontrolled mental uh, health issues, morbid obesity with a BMI over 40, substance use disorders, or lack of health insurance. Once the initial contraindications are reviewed and, and patients are deemed um, to be potential candidates, we'll do an on-site full-day evaluation, typically at the transplant center where the patient comes down for one or two days for a full evaluation. These uh, evaluations can last hours and will include uh, intense education about the transplant process. After completion of the evaluation, we send patients back to their local uh, communities and they have what we call homework, which is uh, testing and procedures that are needed to complete the evaluation. This is usually done locally and it typically involves blood work, review of outside records, past medical history. Often the patients will need additional cardiac testing, such as a stress test, or if they have uh, cardiovascular history, a cardiac catheterization, and they'll de definitely need up-to-date cancer screenings, including mammography and colonoscopies if applicable. Uh, and usually we require this testing to be done within six months of the initial evaluation. And once it's complete, they move on to the fourth step, which is the selection committee. 
This is a multidisciplinary team that reviews the candidacy of each patient that was that completed the evaluation process. And during this, we'll discuss things including medical, financial, and social concerns. And from this, we'll come to a decision. Either the patients will be deemed uh, candidates and actively listed. There'll be additional requirements for some patients, or in, in certain instances, they'll be deemed um, not candidates, but that's certainly the min minority of cases. After this uh, selection committee, if patients are deemed candidates, they'll be listed on the active kidney transplant waiting list, which is the fifth step. And uh, listing is typically anywhere from three up, up to eight years uh, before a transplant uh, comes available for the patient, for a deceased donor but it can be uh, shorter or longer depending on uh, patient-specific criteria, including their um, matching criteria and blood type. Thank you, Dr. Tabor. And can you list some of the common barriers to be enlisted for a kidney transplant? Sure, so there's barriers along the complete process and, as a, and hopefully um, as I went through those five steps, you could see that you know it's not a simple process. There's lots of uh, potential logistical issues. So with the referral, although it's required by Medicare um, to be done, that there are patients that actually never do get referred um, by dialysis centers or nephrologists. Um, but even if they are referred, as I mentioned, upwards of 50% of patients will not move forward to the actual evaluation process. And this is usually due to misinformation or concerns that the patients have about their eligibility. They may hear horror stories from other patients and not understand the true process with regards to potential for transplantation. As we move into the evaluation, as I mentioned, there's a lot of logistical challenges, transportation down to the transplant center. It may be hours away. Uh, this typically has to occur on non-dialysis days for those of receiving dialysis. They need to have a caregiver present during the evaluation. So that can be challenging. There can be challenges with costs, either for the travel or hotel if they're staying overnight. And then there's uh, certainly challenges with health literacy, navigating a large and complex medical center uh, in a community that they're not familiar with can be a, a major challenge. They have to meet with the surgeon, the nephrologist, the psychologist, the social worker, the pharmacist. That's a lot of information. A lot of, uh, of education is thrown at the patients quickly, and that can get overwhelming to them. They have um, multiple forms to complete and videos to watch, which also, also can lead to uh, potential barriers. And then, as I mentioned, their homework or testing, there's additional costs and access to local specialists to complete this test, including cardiologists, gastroenterologists for the colonoscopies, as I mentioned. Um, and sometimes this can lead to uh, long delays in getting the completion of those tests, which again can lead to barriers in getting access to the waiting list. Thank you, Dr. Tabor. And can you describe some potential solutions that have been used and are proven to reduce or remove some of these barriers? Sure, so one of the areas we've really focused on is improving our education for the patients and making sure they understand um, all of the different aspects of the transplant process. 
We've improved our education videos by making them shorter and adding vignettes and actual transplant recipients to correct some of the misinformation that's out there. Uh, within these videos, we also provide step-by-step -step guidance to ensure patients understand the, the complete evaluation process and provide additional information about potential resources, either financial or, or again, more information that the patients can go to to help them through the process. Another uh, very promising area is, is uh, patient navigators, which have been used in, in cancer care for decades, but but are also being used in transplantation. There are studies that have demonstrated improved access to transplant using patient navigators. These navigators work directly with patients and their caregivers to identify and remove barriers. They can help set up appointments. They can help act as a liaison between the transplant center and the patient and caregiver, as well as local community-based providers that are doing additional testing, such as the cardiologists and gastroenterologist, as I mentioned. They can even help set up transportation to and from the transplant center on non-dialysis days and uh, work with other healthcare systems to get records to the transplant center. So these navigators are a crucial component to, to breaking down some of these barriers. And then as we've done at MUSC, we've really worked to improve our structure and processes during this. Uh, this includes uh, implementing telehealth to complete the initial evaluation so the patients don't have to travel down to the transplant center. And then actually we're embedding, uh, embedding nurse practitioners and physicians assistants to act as navigators, as well as to help schedule some of those uh, homework tests that, we, that I mentioned in the, in the previous question. They can also help coordinate with the labs and the healthcare sites to, to schedule the, the cancer screenings and additional cardiac testing that's needed. And then there are other resources. There's financial resources through grants and patient support systems, as well as support groups through uh, patient networks that, that are present you know, within, within the World Wide Web, as well as other uh, social networks. Well, thank you, Dr. Tabor, and thank you, Nephew community, for joining us today as we explore the pre-transplant journey. Please check out nephew.org for future webinars, podcasts, and events, or follow us on our social media platforms. Our handle is at Nephew Community. Thanks again, and we look forward to seeing you here at Nephew next time. Enjoy the rest of your day.